Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Any Line, Anytime. My name is Mark Babin, and it's a pleasure to have you listening today. In this episode, we dive deep into the world of retail operations, an industry that has undergone a dramatic transformation in the past 12 months on the back of the global pandemic. And while much has changed in the way that consumers behave, we answer the question of what that really means for retail operators. Joining me is the best-selling author and host of Remarkable Retail podcast, Steve Dennis. As an expert on retail operations and a global influencer with contributions in a number of highly regarded publications and news platforms, Steve will lend his insights into this fascinating world. So grab your shopping cart and let's get into this exciting episode. I'll catch you on the other side. Steve, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for lending us your time this morning. Appreciate having you here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I guess we'll jump right into things. And obviously the topic of the day, uh, I want to talk about the concept that you've spoken a lot in both your writing and speaking. It's on your podcast all the time. Uh, you know, it's in your first book and surely in your second one. Um, this whole concept that good is not good enough anymore. And even more recently, very good is not even good enough anymore. So when we look at the typical retail operators, can you give us some insight on why this is such a core for the work that you do? Sure. I, I started on this path um, a number of years ago. I guess I first started thinking about it when I read my friend Seth Godin's book, Purple Cow, which I think came out in 2003 or 2004. And Seth was talking more broadly about the impact of e-commerce and digital disruption. But essentially the premise was that as more things became abundant, you know, choices about places to shop, the selection that you can access via e-commerce, the amount of information that was growing, that it was just harder and harder to even get the customer's attention amid all this information and noise and distraction. And that as consumers got more power, more choice, more access, if you weren't truly remarkable, uh, then you didn't really have a good chance to compete effectively. And so I started to think about that in the retail, retail context. And then I certainly felt as more and more um, customer journeys started in a digital channel as e-commerce grew, uh, it's just harder and harder to compete. So the fundamental premise is really that in a world of abundance and a world of choice, that if you don't truly distinguish yourself, um, it's just harder and harder to compete. And I think as we've looked at the retailers that have gotten into trouble, I mean, the, the facts certainly bear that out, particularly over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel like um, retailers get perhaps caught up on the competitive nature and then they lose track of, I guess, what makes them unique? Is that something that you see pretty common? Well, I think what was true for a long time um, is that you could, well, number one, I would say if you go back even to say 15 or 20 years ago, a lot of competitive advantage was based upon physical location. Uh, you know, that there were only so many stores in a given town that you had the best uh, location on the high street or in a mall or whatever. And so there were these locational advantages and kind of historical advantages which allowed some retailers to get away with, you know, being maybe slightly better than average. 
Um, but I think as competition increased, both physical competition from all sorts of different formats, but particularly e-commerce, I think a lot of retailers didn't appreciate the degree to which they needed to transform their business model for this digital world. Um, and that they they do what I call a slightly better version of mediocre, you know, that if they get a little bit better, that's going to be good enough. But I think as we've seen retailers, particularly these legacy retailers, the department stores in particular, probably the best case, um, making a lot of incremental improvements, like none of it seems to make any appreciable difference. So I, I think they underestimate consistently the degree to which consumer power has shifted, the degree to which technology has changed things. Um, and, you know, just digital access has fundamentally reset the playing field. Fair enough. Yeah. And I think we'll, we'll touch more on that consumer angle. Um, but that what you said leads really well into this next point about how, you know, in your first book and and you've spoken about it multiple times, but the industry was clearly headed in a certain direction, you know, over the next five to 10 years, looking like pre-pandemic, what the per, what the projections were for the industry. Um, and obviously speaking with you previously and learning more about the industry itself, it seems like this past year and the, the pandemic effect uh, did nothing more than really speed up that timeline rather than alter its industry's fate, at least from my understanding. So I'm super fascinated to know how you saw that shift take place over the past year compared to perhaps where it would have gone uh, if the pandemic would have not happened. Yeah, so I generally, um, I mean, I think to some degree people have overestimated the degree of change, because I think we got more awareness about certain things during the pandemic. In particular, the blurring of the lines between digital and physical channels has been going on for a long time. When I worked at the Neiman Marcus Group back, uh, you know, almost 15 years ago, we were working on those things. So I think a lot of these trends were actually there, but they were perhaps not as appreciated by the business press and some of the retailers that were really behind were just basically forced to confront them. But certainly uh, there are a set of things that are particular to the pandemic and a set of things that just got pushed ahead a little bit. I mean, the shift to digitally driven shopping journeys and e-commerce has been accelerated. People have written about it being accelerated by 10 years. That's just not consistent with the facts. The facts are that it's been accelerated on average about two years, perhaps a little bit more in grocery. But things like curbside pickup, buy online pickup in store, live streaming, virtual shopping, those, those sort of things, which were pretty, uh, to varying degrees, were fairly minor, have gotten a real, a real jump start. So one of the reasons why I updated my book is uh, the first edition was completed a few months before COVID hit. And one of the, I mean, the fundamental principles in the, in the book are not changed uh, much at all in the second edition. But when I wrote the first book, what I was really worried about was that these retailers that were kind of stuck in the boring middle, as I describe it, weren't changing fast enough, that these trends were really catching up them very quickly and they needed to really transform very quickly. But I would say on average, I thought, well, the retailers I had in mind were, you know, maybe had two, three, four years to make those changes. And COVID just really compressed those timelines to, you know, under a year. So so part of the book is a reset of that that perspective uh, and emphasizing what's important going, going forward. But, you know, you could see a lot of these trends coming. Um, it's just that the reckoning ended up being a lot faster and in many cases much harsher than otherwise would have been the case. 
Sure. Fair enough. Okay. So obviously you mentioned the new book um, and some of the, the topics in it, but you know, and I was appreciative to get, to get an opportunity to read through it. Um, the concept that really stood out to me, at least in that first half, as you mentioned, are these retail channels that operators used to use uh, and to some degree, I guess, still use and that classifying that physical versus um, e-commerce operations and revenue, I guess for the typical consumer, the typical consumer and millennial, especially like myself included, you know, it's mind blowing to think that retailers even think in this capacity just based on, you know, how blurred that really is, at least from a consumer point of view, but how structural it still is for them. I know even in the, the news in the past, what, few days I saw on LinkedIn uh, and and your comments on it, but with the whole um, Saxon Fifth Ave and, and the I guess the situation there where they've taken their retail or their, their physical and online and actually separated the businesses. Um, which is mind blowing to think that that's like, I thought the whole concept was to blur these channels together because (laughs) as a consumer, I don't care how or where I get my product. It's more of, you know, whether it's online or shop, it's a combination. They're, they're really blurred. So why does it make sense or or where's that kind of going? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, they're definitely, and some, some of this is more of a cultural thing or historical thing, but when just a tiny bit of history, because I started working on e-commerce in the late nineties mm-hmm. and there was definitely in the early days of e-commerce where it wasn't really clear how fast things would change. And e-commerce was in many respects, kind of an updated version of mail order catalog, you know, that it was a way rather than faxing an order or calling in uh, or mailing an order uh, you now could do this through an inline online interface and, you know, also you could send emails and, you know, there's certainly a change to marketing, but the, the supply chain side of it and the sort of products that were offered were still pretty commodity. Like, so if, even if you think about the first five or six years of Amazon's growth, they were mostly selling things that were pretty easy to understand online, like a book or a coffee pot. And they were mailing it to you just like mail order catalog merchants have been doing for decades. Um, but I think, you know, what really started to change was certainly just the general adoption. So a lot of the legacy retailers, so to speak, you know, the Walmarts of the world and other big retailers basically said, oh, we got to get going on this dot com stuff. And they largely approached it as a separate business. And some of that was to get speed. Some of that was to get talent that really thought in a different way. But absolutely, for at least 15 years, I would say at this point, most leading retailers understood that your digital channels drive physical and your physical channels drive digital and that consumers, your best customers in particular, tend to be active in, in all channels. And, and so it is very odd to me that any retailer would go in the other direction. Um, It's also incredible to me that some retailers still have been very slow to break down these, these silos. Uh, But in many cases it has to do with culturally the way retailers were set up and the way they measure things. Um, but there's also a lot of technology investment that has to happen to really bring this integration together, or as I describe it, as a harmonized shopping experience. Um, but I think the pandemic, you know, once again, really um, casts a light on this because, you know, so many customers were uh, maybe switching, yes, just to e-commerce, but a lot of what happened was using online to place an order that was going to um, be done through buy, uh, pickup at store or curbside pickup. So that was like sort of the most obvious hybridization. 
so to speak, of of the channels. But the other thing a lot of retailers started to do it, with stores is fulfill e-commerce orders from store stock. So just inherently, um, like I said, I mean, these trends have been going on for a while, but it, it really got accelerated. So I, yeah, I don't understand really why any retailer would not understand that the customer is really the channel and it's our job to figure out how to best serve them anytime, anywhere, anyway. Perfect. So with the development of, of technology that, of course, the consumer has, and they have much more uh, you know, the mobile phone, uh, the, the smartphone capabilities that a consumer has, that technology itself also probably causes a decent amount of blending of these channels um, because yeah, the consumer has more power. Right. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, um, so when I first started really working on channel integration, which was, uh, you know, in a serious way uh, in 2004, you know, what I, and I go into this in the book a little bit, going, and I'm sure for younger people listening, they're probably be amused by this, but, you know, this idea of going online, whether that was to shop or, you know, whatever, social media, um, you know, it was a pretty intentional act because the way you got online was generally from a computer at your home or office. So you were limited in getting online by where you happen to be located and what, you know, if you didn't have a home computer, then you only get on from the office. So, so that really made shopping something you kind of had to think about. And you could only do it when you had access to the internet. And even in some cases, because of landlines, <laughs> not as much Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. like, you know, if somebody was on your phone, you know, on a landline phone, you couldn't go online. So, I mean, <laughs> there was really a lot of limits to the degree to which online, sh- online shopping can ex- accelerate. But when um, the iPhone came out in 2007, the Android came out in 2008, and then, you know, obviously there was growth from there. There was really this big shift that started to occur nine or 10 years ago, which was, well, now you could be online. You know, I always say, you know, we don't longer go online. We live online because most of us, for better or worse, have a smartphone or smart device Mm -hmm. with us all the time. So that really changed things because that was sort of the connective tissue, if you will, between digital and physical. Um, cause not only could you access shopping anywhere you happen to be, you could even do that in a store, right. Or you could be in one store and be checking the competitors, uh, prices or availability or whatever. So that has really shifted to this, almost this idea of the best location for your brand is not, you know, in a mall or your website per se, it's wherever the customer happens to be because so many customers can be shopping in a second. And, um, you know, if you don't show up in remarkable ways in those moments that matter, you really risk losing the sale. So I think it's really caused a major shift in thinking about, um, you know, marketing, brand presentation, how customer journeys have, have evolved. And, you know, we're not going back. I mean, mobile, I think, is depending on the category, depending on the country, um, some sort of mobile interaction is involved with something like half of all consumer purchases. So it's huge. Yeah, I like that point. And we'll get back to that. I did want to just touch on one thing, and that's the whole concept of these like new customer experiences, uh, like you were mentioning, um, you know, most of which did ex- exist previous to this past year, but perhaps didn't have the spotlight that this past year put on them. Concepts like BOPIS, you know, buy online, pick up in store, um, really seem to put the customer in even more control of how they purchase the product and, and how that package even arrives to their house, whether they go pick it up or whether it's delivered. Um, do you think strategies like this or other ones hint that that it's, it's a new way of thinking for retailers, at least the way that they perhaps should be thinking? 
Well, it's kind of funny. And I, you know, I tried to say this without sounding too harsh, but um, buy online pickups in store. Um, I think Nordstrom rolled that out in 2003. Uh, we rolled that out at Lehman Marcus over 10 years ago. So buy online pickup in store has been a good idea for a long time. I think that um, for whatever reason, probably cost, retailers didn't embrace it as aggressively as they should have until they were basically forced to do it. Mm -hmm. So there is an aspect of innovation where I think we should be very critical of retailers that took too long to innovate when others like Best Buy and, and Target and Tractor Supply, you can go down a list of retailers that basically were doing all the things you know, years mm -hmm. uh, ahead of the crisis that really served them well. And now a lot of retailers are playing catch up. So if I were in management or a board, I would be like, well, what, why did it take a crisis for you to innovate? Uh, but certain behaviors certainly are very particular to what happened in, in COVID. And it remains to be seen the degree to which some of them will persist. But I think that the lesson is, um, aside from adopting a culture of experimentation and being more agile. But I think the lesson is the more you map out customer journeys and the more you understand whether it's digital or physical or some combination where there are pain points or friction points, uh, but also opportunities to really wow the customer or give yourself a, a competitive in, in, um, advantage. If you're doing that work all the time, you will be ahead of the game in terms of understanding how customer needs are evolving. And if you do it better than the competition, you should be able to implement some of these things. So you're, you know, you're never going to be able to anticipate, though actually there are a couple of companies that did, but you're never going to be, you know, completely ready for something like a global pandemic. Um, but so I think the lesson is not to take less risk, less risk because you're worried that some calamitous thing is going to happen. You really have to lean into these opportunities. And most of that's rooted in just understanding the customer better and where technology enables you to, to do some things more effectively and efficiently. Sure. So this whole, you know, shift in thinking, as you mentioned about like, you know, how retailers have to market to consumers because that's obviously made a big shift and, and a big transition. Um, now you've mentioned that consumers are in control. So marketing has become real time and dynamic. Like it's not like it used to be where there was a few channels in which you could reach the customer. It's everywhere. It's, you know, instant. It's on through other consumers, other shoppers on TikTok, on, on Twitter, on Instagram, wherever, um, and your website and where you advertise. So it's very dynamic. <laughs> right. It's very real time. Um, now, you gave this example in your new book of how a shopper can literally be shopping online while in your physical store, even checking out your competitor while holding your product in their hand, which I find it's hilarious to think of as a marketer because that would drive you nuts. But as a consumer, nothing seems more normal. I mean, I'm guilty of it. I'm sure most watching are guilty of it because you want to get the best price or the best option or the best availability of something. So, you know, you're holding one product and you're looking at it, where else can I get it? How much is it? Um, so I guess the question here is how in the world do retail operators react to this kind of world? Well, one is, and it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the blending of the channels. It, it, you know, if you know that customers are active, I'll use that term just for engaging, in various different ways, then it, number one, puts a real premium on your trying to bring all that customer data together into one place. So you know as much about the customer as you possibly can to try to personalize that experience. The other piece is to make sure that your various channels 
are, are well synchronized or harmonized as I, as I talk about, because otherwise there can be a real disconnect between what the customer experiences in a physical store and what they might experience, you know, cause you could, you could, for example, um, even without a mobile device, right. You could be in a store doing some research. Let's say on a big, this is something I did recently, went to the store to check out big screen TVs. I ended up buying online when I got home <laughs> the next day. Um, so you know, if that, if that whole experience isn't, isn't well orchestrated, um, you can cause some real, um, dissatisfaction in the customer. So, I mean, it is, it is very complicated. Uh, you know, I often say that, um, and it's, it's a cl cliche that, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. I mean, you don't have to get this all figured out in one fell swoop and try to do this massive, um, integration necessarily. But again, if you're paying attention to the dynamics of your most important customers and prospects, you're paying attention to the reality of how they shop and the reality that they probably have a smartphone with them, then you have to not only design your marketing programs to be in context and dynamic, but the whole customer experience has to hang together very well or, you know, you, the customer doesn't stay with you. I mean, that's, that's the thing too, you know, if you think about 15 years ago, let's say, and you were shopping for a big screen TV, well... That basically meant driving around to a bunch of stores, mm. right? And then, and it meant that if you went to three stores and you decided to buy from the first one, you had to go back to the first store to order it, right? And how do, you know, how do I know what the best store, the best big screen TV is to buy? Well, it's what the sales associate told me, or maybe I saw a TV ad or something, or maybe mm. I read consumer reports, you know, which came once a month. And, you know, they have, and when did the la when did they do the last article on big screen TVs? Maybe it's 18 months ago, right? So, so I mean, just the whole shift in information availability and, and the real-time nature of it is huge. And just the friction between not having to run around to a bunch of different stores or only rely on the salesperson or, you know, whatever. I mean, that's, that's just a huge shift of power away from retail to the consumer and to the real-time nature of shopping. And I guess, to, so really the, the retailer has to, you know, give the consumer the, you know, assume that they are going to do these things and, and anticipate it and build your plans around that rather than being, I guess, blind to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, I think certainly that's the starting assumption. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it's certainly helpful to do customer segmentation and have personalization scheme that may, you know, some customers may be super price sensitive. Others might be very feature sensitive mm -hmm. or, you know, prestige or, you know, image sensitive or what, you know, there's lots of things you could think about sure. in terms of how to making your marketing more relevant. But yeah, certainly the kind of baseline um, is fundamentally different in the last five or 10 years than it was before. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Well, uh, the, obviously I want to touch on the, the new book um, and a large part of it is the eight essentials of remarkable retail. Now the whole term remarkable, obviously something that's um, used by you in, in all your work. It's the title of the podcast and the books and everything, which I love. I love the word remarkable. It really sums it up really well. Like we spoke about today. Um, now the book does a really great job at outlining these eight essentials as a guide for retail operators uh, as they reach for remarkable much as you say, there's no one size fits all uh, solution given the extensive variables at play in the industries and the products and so on and so forth. But these eight essentials really act as a guide. So I guess from here, would you be able to give the audience a bit of an understanding of this framework and then just how important it is to help them identify and understand that path to Remarkable? Sure. So um, I've been developing this framework over the last few years, uh, mainly because I saw a set of common themes, I guess, between uh, 
or among retailers, uh, both in terms of things that had to be present for them to basically stay competitive. So the first six, which are digitally enabled, human-centered, harmonized, mobile, personal, and connected, I describe in the book as, as becoming more table stakes. In other words, if you aren't pretty good at them, chances are you're going to fall behind. And then the last two, memorable and radical, are more have power to be uh, key differentiators. So memorable is really the thing that kind of lines up the most with remarkable in that, you know, it's very distinctive, um, you know, creating a sense of wow. And the most important component of remarkable is the idea that customers will share the story of your brand with others to literally remark upon it. And then radical is a little bit more how to do it, which is fundamentally this culture of experimentation, always be testing. And, you know, that's part of the way that you not only become remarkable, but you you stay that way. So, you know, I, as you mentioned, I try not to say that this is kind of a, like a cookbook approach or these have to be um, approached sequentially, um, but they're really more component pieces of a remarkable strategy. So each retailer can can go through and kind of assess where they are in terms of their particular part of the market, um, their strength along each of these dimensions and where they might get the most leverage, both in the short term as well as over the longer term. And I guess for a lot of retailers as well, it would give them, um, I guess, the idea they would see something or think of something they perhaps wouldn't have thought of otherwise. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you know, at the risk of kind of pulling my punches on some of this, retail is such a huge industry. So it's it's very hard without, you know, writing like an 800 page book to try to <laughs> say, oh, well, if you're in the electronics business or if you went after younger customers or, you know, I mean, it could get a little bit crazy. Um, but I try to give enough examples of what it means and also some case studies of, of retailers that are having success along these dimensions. And in some cases pointing out, um, you know, I don't like to go so much to the negative, but um, I think there are some familiar examples of companies that once were remarkable, but have really lost their edge over the last uh, you know couple decades, let's say, and and are either gone or or in serious trouble. So hopefully, I can draw some contrast there. Yeah, absolutely. Nope, that's perfect. And I, and I very much look forward to the audience having the chance to see it. Um, it's incredibly insightful, and uh, yeah, plenty to take away. Um, you know, even as a non-retailer, just as a consumer, it was super fascinating to read. So beautiful, really good talk. I really appreciate the insights, uh, Steve. Again, not only for me, but the audience. I really hope that there's plenty of points that they can take away um, and hopefully pre-order the book and, and get the first one and get on it and start making action <laughs> steps forward. Um, no, I think that's obviously the goal. But yeah, before we sign off, any any final notes on your end? Uh, the only thing I was going to say is, yeah, it's interesting when you talk about other industries, I have had a number of people tell me that they thought most, if not all, the principles apply to, to many uh, types of businesses outside of retail. And I think if you do have a uh, consumer service oriented business, uh, I, do, I do see that I have worked a little bit in some other industries and I do see many of these principles being, being true. I don't know if it's so much true in the manufacturing world, let's say, but I think if you're a consumer facing experiential service uh, consumer brand that uh, it does extend pretty well. Yeah, that's Just a great point. So. No, that's a great point. I think a lot of them are universal in some capacity in their theory, theory and, and theoretical approach. So, nope, I think that's great. Again, very much appreciate you being here and the time. Uh, it's obviously been an honor for me to be able to time to speak with you um, about the topic. So again, thank you so much for for being here. And again, the audience, uh, tons of value for them to take away. So 
thanks again for being here and appreciate your time today. Great. Thanks for having me on. So much valuable information to take away from this discussion with Steve. As a retail operator, it seems that although the past months have proven difficult, it's all to play for moving forward. Being proactive and embracing the fact that convenience is key seems to be a great place to start. You can catch more information from Steve on his podcast, Remarkable Retail. And of course, don't forget to check out his new book coming out on April 13th. I'll be sure to link it in the podcast description below. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure having you listen to this great episode on retail. And I look forward to having you on the next episode. Until then, stay happy, stay healthy. I'll see you all very soon.